Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. Today we're going to continue our discussion with our guest Tim Stratton on his view, Molinism, which seeks to resolve the tension between the biblical concepts of predestination and human free will. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend you listen to that first. And in a moment, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Let's just dive right into this idea of God's knowledge. There, there are three views of God's knowledge, and I think it's important to just say at the outset that Calvinists, Arminians, and Molinists, they all affirm that God is omniscient, that He is all-knowing. But the disagreement comes uh, in how that is defined and how that knowledge actually works. And this is, the, this is what actually sets Molinism apart from the other views. So before you think this is some sort of, you know, Hogwarts, something we learned at Hogwarts (laughs) or some sort of like pagan new age phrase, all three views are based on theologians who sort of in their own way were trying to solve this problem. And we're going to get into the history of all of that in, um, in, in a minute, but First, I just want to define, you know, what God's knowledge is. And uh, so, Tim, I'll just ask you, what are the three different views of God's knowledge? Um, Okay, yeah. So we've got natural knowledge, middle knowledge, and free knowledge. If God is omniscient, God possesses these three what we call logical moments of knowledge. Not necessarily chronological, but they're logical moments. So natural, middle, and free knowledge. So natural knowledge is... Simply put, that God knows everything that could happen. Mm-hmm. Okay? So free knowledge, then, is God knows everything that will happen. And that's, that's really a foreknowledge, mm-hmm. right? God knows everything that will happen. But God also, if he's omniscient, possesses middle knowledge. And he knows everything that would happen if. Mm-hmm. So we got natural, middle, and free knowledge. That means that God knows everything that could, would, and will happen. So God knows everything that could happen, everything that will happen, and then everything that would happen if, in different circumstances. So I like to say that middle knowledge brings the would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> could, would, and will. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. And so which one of these views would, say, Calvinists affirm? Well, typically, it depends on the Calvinist you talk to, but I think they would uh, hold to both natural and free knowledge. Most of them will deny middle knowledge because that means... Uh, Molinism is true, and Calvinism, right. at least the way they understand Calvinism, is false. So Molinists are are the the main distinctive factor in your view in Molinism is this idea of middle knowledge that yeah, that's what the, what would happen if yeah yeah I say there's two uh, essential pillars or two uh, two pillars to affirm 
mere Molinism. C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. talked about mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about mere Molinism. Mere Christianity is just affirming the proposition that God raised Jesus from the dead. Mm-hmm. You know, so, right, right. so if you believe that, then you, you're you're a mere Christian. Um, now we can talk about other. You know, what what can we build on top of that? But mere Molinism simply means that God is eternally omniscient, and He knows everything that could, would, and will happen, and that humans uh, possess libertarian free will. We're genuinely free and responsible, at least some of the time. And I'm not just talking about moral responsibility. I'm talking about rational responsibility. If you're free to think, if you're even free to examine your own thoughts and beliefs, well, then I contend that uh, if something else is causing your thoughts about your beliefs and your beliefs about your thoughts, then you aren't in control of what you believe. Right. I mean, so, and if that's the case, then you lose all rights to say, well, I think this, I mean, you didn't do it. You didn't, you're not responsible for those thoughts. Something else external to you is causing and forcing and determining all of your thoughts, including your thoughts about your beliefs and your beliefs about your thoughts. And as Dr. Craig says, if that's what you're going to affirm, then a, a sort of vertigo will set in mm-hmm. for every thought that you think. Even this very thought itself is not up to you. It's up to something else. Mm-hmm. So anyway, sorry I went off there in a little sermon. No, that's good. Um, <laughs> but uh, what, so was, what, what was your question? Well, what's the, you know, as far as middle knowledge goes, and that's kind of, yeah. you know, the distinctive factor that here, what, what's the biblical support for that? I mean, you know, that sounds right, but is there, is there any biblical data that actually says, yeah, God does have this middle knowledge, this knowledge of what would happen if this particular situation happened? Yes. Let's, um, let me get to some biblical data here in one second. Just let me add this about middle knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, if God is omniscient, then he eternally knows the truth value to every and all propositions. And if all means all, then this includes what we call counterfactual propositions. So here you go. If, if one is going to affirm that the universe had a beginning, that the universe has not existed eternally without beginning, okay? So if one affirms that the universe had a beginning and that God did not have a beginning, right? Do you mm-hmm. think most... Most Christians would affirm that? Yes. Absolutely. Okay, the universe began to exist. God did not begin to right. exist. He the exists necessarily. The universe was caused. God was not caused. There you go. Eternal. So, yes. so if one is going to affirm that the universe had a beginning and that God did not have a beginning and also affirm that God is eternally omniscient. So, so was God omniscient logically prior to creating the universe? Yes. Right. Well, then God's got middle knowledge. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so God possesses middle knowledge. Uh, so let's talk about biblical support for middle knowledge. Does the Bible ever say God is omniscient logically prior to his creative decree? No, there's no Bible verse that states that right. in, in those words. But the Bible is clear that God possesses counterfactual knowledge. And um, I've got a couple articles on my website that examine uh, multiple scriptures. Uh, I'd encourage people to go to an article I have called Middle Knowledge, Middle Knowledge and Molinism. Go ahead and repeat your website for the listeners here, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, freethinkingministries.com. Freethinkingministries.com. There's tons of articles on Tim's view, Molinism, and, and a very helpful, great article on prayer you guys just put out recently mm. that, that yeah. I really loved. But anyway, continue. Sorry. Uh, so, the Bible is clear that God possesses counterfactual knowledge. I think one of the most powerful 
uh, passages of Scripture indicating this is found in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 23, 6-14. And in this passage, God lets David know a truth to a counterfactual proposition, namely that if David were to stay at Kaliah, then Saul would pursue him. So God obviously possesses counterfactual knowledge, right? right? He told him, this is, this is a truth. If you stay here, Saul, will, Saul would pursue you. So David doesn't stick around, right? right. And, and something different happens. So God knows the truth value to counterfactual propositions. So that means God possesses counterfactual knowledge. So this is the question. Has God always possessed this knowledge? If, if one answers yes, then God has middle knowledge. So to reject this, one has to say, no, God gained this knowledge at some point in time. Which would make him inferior at some point in time, which would yes. make him not all-powerful, right? Well, it would at least make him not omniscient. And, and, and not a maximally great being, right? right. He's not, so say goodbye to perfect being theology, if that's yeah. the case. And I've, got, I've co-authored a, a peer-reviewed article that's going to be coming out, uh, I think, later this fall. It's uh, going to be published in the next few weeks. But the guy I'm co-authoring with, Jacobus Erasmus, is uh, making a pretty strong case for God's middle knowledge uh, just based on perfect being theology. But, uh, but here's, another, here's one that I came up with. It's five, five steps to this argument. Premise one, if God is eternally omniscient, then God knows the truth value to all propositions logically prior to his creative decree. Two, if God knows the truth value to all propositions logically prior to his creative decree, this includes counterfactual propositions. Three, if God possesses counterfactual knowledge logically prior to his creative decree, God possesses middle knowledge. Four, God is eternally omniscient. Conclusion, five, therefore, God has middle knowledge. Um, I've got some other uh, arguments on the website. Uh, Kirk McGregor recently came out with a strong argument for uh, God's middle knowledge based on logic and scripture. Mm-hmm. Just encourage people to surf around on the website. And again, that website is freethinkingministries.com. Uh, so we've kind of talked about the biblical support for the idea of middle knowledge. And then earlier we were talking about libertarian free will, but I don't think we actually got to the scriptures on that one. So what is the, the biblical data that supports the idea of libertarian free will or human free will? I think it's easy to make the case for libertarian free will with the Old Testament. From Genesis on, I think it's easy to make that case. And again, I refer people to my article, Molinism is Biblical. But let me use one passage that I, that I usually start with, and that's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And that is, every time that you're tempted to sin, God will provide a way of escape, right? Mm-hmm. So that you do not have to sin. You have the ability not to sin. Since you have the ability not to sin, you are... Uh, responsible. You are able not to sin, so you are responsible for your sin. Mm-hmm, See, mm-hmm. that I mean, you think about the word responsible or responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. If you have the ability not to sin, then you have a responsibility for your sin. Now, in this case, let's think about it. If every time that you are 
tempted to sin, God will provide a way of escape. What logically follows from that? It follows that when you do sin, you could have chosen otherwise. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So Paul clearly teaches libertarian free will here. It, yeah. That means you could have chosen otherwise. And if that's true, then at least some people possess libertarian free will. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's so many implications for prayer. You know, just recently I saw a tweet by R.C. Sproul, who is, of course, a staunch Calvinist. And he was kind of making the point that prayer changes things, but it, it changes us. And the primary point of it is to kind of bring us in line with God's will. And and I I agree, but there is a lot in the Bible about petitionary prayer, about yeah. asking for things. And, you know, and so, so I, w- when I think like a Molinist, whether I am one or not, <laughs> when I think like a Molinist, it, it allows me to see God as fully sovereign, yes. fully in control. In fact, even I, I would, I would dare to say uh, it's a higher view I of agree. God's foreknowledge and sovereignty. Yes. But at the same time, I'm not off the hook, right? you know? And, and so it really makes a lot of logical sense. So uh, just tell us a little bit about the history behind where these views came from, because I think there's some confusion out there, like who came first or who was responding to who. Uh, but you have recently done some significant historical research in this area. So fill us in. How, where did these views come from and um, how did this all come about? Well, this is uh, perfect timing since uh, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is coming up. Right. <laughs> so let's think about that. So about 500 years ago, almost to the day, uh, Martin Luther uh, pounded the, his 95 theses into the door of Wittenberg, right? Right. And, and most people look at that as the, as the catalyst of what has become known as the Protestant Reformation. And to be a part of the Reformation in that 16th century simply meant that you realize that the Catholic Church at the time, the Roman Catholic Church at the time, had some practices that were not biblically based. <laughs> you know, and, and right. I mean, I don't right. need to get into all the details. And that, you, yeah. and that one believed it needed to be changed. And so you had, I mean, Luther's initial approach was to try to change the church from within and eventually got to the position where he thought, but that was impossible, so he left and started the Protestant movement. Um, I think he called the the church the whore of Babylon or something like that. That's yeah. why he left it. Now, others, yeah. other reformers, uh, liked Luther's initial approach and chose to stay within the Catholic Church to reform it from the inside. I believe Luis de Molina is a perfect example of that. In fact. Kirk McGregor, the Molina scholar, has argued that Molina considered himself to be just as much of a reformer as Luther or Calvin. Mm -hmm. But so you got Luther leaving, starting the Protestant Reformation. So Luther's in Germany. Calvin is 25 years younger than Luther in France. And those two, you know, they're they're really looked at as the the two guys that were pushing this, the Reformation forward. But it, it seems to me that Molina then in Spain, was aware of the teachings of Luther and Calvin, thought they got most things right. In fact, Mm. uh, I believe uh, McGregor makes this point in his biography on Molina that he would agree with most of the things that they were saying. They were really close, 
to being on the mm-hmm. same page. They, maybe they were on the same page. They just weren't on the same paragraph. Because Molina, who was trained in Aquinas and Anselm and Aristotle, I mean, he was a he was a logician and a philosopher himself, as well as a theologian. He was trained yeah. to think logically about everything, including the Bible. And so he saw the things that were coming out of from Luther and Calvin, say, hey, guys, you're close, but um, all your statements can't be connected logically, basically. Uh, in fact, some right. of your statements seem to be in logical contradiction with each other. Let me complete this puzzle for you. And mm. he, he said, you got to take into consideration God's knowledge causally before or logically prior to his creative decree to actualize this world, this universe. And so that's his middle knowledge. You've got to consider God's middle knowledge before making some of these claims. And so he was able to complete this puzzle. So we're not left with making, with making um, claims that seem to be uh, held in tension. You know, the, you'll, you'll hear that I used to say this a lot as a Calvinist when people would ask me questions and say, hey, isn't that a logical contradiction? And I'll say, well, you just got to leave some things in tension. Leave some things rest in tension. That's a nice Yeah, thing. and that's, that's the main response I've heard from Calvinists right. on what is the logical contradiction. And that's why I can't go there. I can't settle on that because it's God is not illogical. Right. And there's a difference between saying, hey, that's a mystery and a difference between making two claims that logically oppose each other. Exactly. Right? So I have no yes. problem if you want to say, hey, that's a mystery, but then don't affirm two things that cannot be true simultaneously. That violates exactly. logic. There are a lot of mysteries in the Bible. There are a lot of things the Bible has intentionally left mysterious, but there and there are things that we're never going to understand. I don't understand how God created the universe. Exactly. But I know that and, it did. And, but we know that he did, but, but it would be a logical contradiction to say God created the universe and God did not create the universe. Right. You know, that's a contradiction. Yeah. So if we're going to go there, then Calvinism can be true and not be true at the same time. Right. right? So we can't reject logic here. But Molina yeah. completed the puzzle. Now, here's, here's more of the story. Arminius, then, most scholars think, uh, was a closet Molinist. He had Molina's writings. Now, Kirk McGregor, wow. who I've mentioned before, he would say that Arminius wasn't a, really a closet Molinist, but that he liked Molina's teachings, but didn't so have he, a proper So he breath. had read, Arminius had read Molina. Yes, he had wow. uh, Molina's writings in his possession. They've been found in his li- in his library. Wow. So, and he quoted Molina. I don't think he quoted him directly, because at one point, I mean, so Arminius was a reformer who died in good standing with the reformers. Okay, so we got to remember that. And so, so often you hear, well, uh, the Reformation was against Arminius. No, Arminius was a reformer. Who yeah, died yeah. And at one point he was accused of being too Catholic. And he mm. actually had to, you know, had, had a trial of sorts. And his reformed colleagues found him to be in line with the Reformation and as uh, Tom McCall from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School told me, Arminius died in good standing with the Reformers. Mm-hmm. But here's what most scholars think. He either was a Molinist, but he couldn't, he couldn't say, hey, everybody, all my Reformed guys, who, who we just left the Catholic Church, check out the teachings of the Spanish Jesuit priest in right. the Catholic Church. Uh, he, right. he can't do that if he wants to stay in good uh, standing with his Reformed brethren. So right. he's taken, a lot of people think, that he took Molina's ideas and repackaged them 
or didn't understand it correctly or was close to Molina's views, but not quite. I, either way, the Arminians, not to be confused with Arminius, but the Arminians who were mm-hmm. Ar- the, the followers of Arminius, after Arminius died in, I think, 1609, all of his followers tried to popularize Arminius's teachings. Mm. What's not really in dispute is this. The Arminians didn't get Arminius right. Wow. Now, maybe, so, I mean, so we don't know for sure. There's debate amongst the scholars here if Arminius was a Molinist or if he was close to a Molinist or if he just repackaged it differently and people didn't understand it. That's up for debate. I mean, I've heard scholars on both sides say yeah. Yeah, he was a Molinist or no, he wasn't, but he was close or he just repackaged it and it didn't get understood correctly. Whatever the case may be, the Arminians totally got it wrong and were not representing. A lot of people think the Arminians didn't even represent Arminius correctly, but it's not disputed at all if they understood. They probably didn't even know who Molina was. I don't know, but they, they were not uh, expressing Molinism at all. Right. Now, now then the Calvinists gathered at the Synod of Dort, or Dordrecht, Dort for short, several years later, I believe it was 16, 18, and 19. And so there at the Synod of Dort, they were responding to the teachings of the Arminians. Not Arminius himself. Right, and definitely not Molina. Mm. So at this point, Molina's views aren't even on the table. So the Arminians got it wrong. They're offering a a straw man or a caricature Mm -hmm. of the real thing of Molina. And that's what the Synod of Dort was responding to. They were responding to the straw man, the caricature. And that's where the five points of tulip came from. Wow. The canons of Dort. So you can't use the five points of tulip as uh, to refute Molinism because though I contend that if the Synod of Dort would have been responding to Molina's actual views and his arguments based on the Bible and logic, that tulip would have never come into existence wow. in the first place. And That's I've argued, a- <laughs> I go to my website, I've argued something else would have come into existence instead. Something that the Synod of Dor and Molina would all agree to. Something wow. slightly, yet drastically different than Tulip. Mm. Something I've said maybe like Tomp or Trump would have come yeah. into existence <laughs> instead. And I go to my website to see what those, uh, what that's an acronym for. But man, I'm just, I'm having so much fun. Uh, oh my goodness, the, yeah. Uh, the history behind well, this. So I, I just contend this. This is Reformation. We're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and that includes Molinists. Molinists are part of that Reformation. Yeah. So we should embrace it. Yeah, well, man, what a fascinating history. So let's just sort of bring this back in the practical as we close. Tim, on your website, you have some questions for Calvinists, but I think these are actually questions that are good for all of us. Uh, why don't we close with you just telling us what are some questions we can be thinking about as we wrestle with this stuff that will kind of help bring clarity to the way we think about this? Well, if people want to uh, go into this more, go to uh, the article I've written at Free Thinking Ministries called Questions for Calvinists. And, uh, and, and the, the image that I've attached to the article is kind of funny. It's got a picture of uh, Luis de Molina and a picture of John Calvin, and there, there's a heart 
between the two of them. Like they, <laughs> they love each other. Yes. And that really Calvinism, and I argue here that one can even be a five-point Calvinist, which I'm not, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a, I could be a four-point, uh, a nuanced four-point Calvinist. Uh, but I, I've written here that you can actually affirm all five points of TULIP and still be a mere Molinist. In fact, I go through even some of John Calvin's quotes where I say that it seems as if Calvin, without realizing it, actually affirmed uh, a soft libertarian free will. Uh, that means just free will in some things. That doesn't mean everything. And mm-hmm. this, this could just be, hey, bra- bracket salvation, um, so, uh, soteriological issues. But do we have free will in other things where we can choose or not choose or make a certain choice. So I, I'm coming to see how one, like I said, it could be a five-point Calvinist and a mere Molinist simultaneously. So here's those questions. Uh, the first question I start out with, did Satan possess the libertarian freedom to reject God? Right? Or did God force him to reject him? Mm. <laughs> did God create Satan in such a way that his nature was one that is guaranteed to reject God. Mm-hmm. Other, and if that's the case, you know, then we're back to the K2SO scenario. Right? So mm-hmm. the question is, did Satan possess libertarian freedom to reject God? Most Calvinists, I'm not going to speak for all of them, but most of the Calvinists who I've interviewed on this mm-hmm. will affirm that Satan possessed the libertarian free will to reject God, that he did not have to. Mm-hmm. Some will disagree. Some disagree. Okay, well, let's go to the next question. Two, did Adam and Eve possess the libertarian freedom to not eat of the forbidden fruit? Or did God causally determine them to sin and eat of the forbidden fruit? Which was it? Were they free to eat of it or not? Did God cause them? Did God create them with a certain nature guaranteeing that they will eat of this fruit? Or did they have the ability to not sin? Hmm. Most Calvinists I've interviewed here, not all. But most will affirm, yeah, Adam and Eve, at least, possessed libertarian free will. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's all we need for mere Molinism to be true. But let's go on. Three, do unregenerate sinners have the libertarian freedom and an ability to choose between a range of sinful thoughts and actions? That is to say, could the unregenerate sinner choose to rob the bank or the liquor store? Could they actually choose between one of the two? Or does God cause them and determine them to rob the bank instead of the liquor store? Or could the, the unregenerate sinner rob the bank or choose otherwise and choose to rob the liquor store? Or just choose to sit on the couch at home and think about robbing the bank or just take a nap? Is he free to make those choices? Or does God causally determine those choices? Most of the Calvinists I've interviewed will affirm that, yes, the, the sinner does have free will, a libertarian mm-hmm. free will, mm-hmm. to choose between a range of sinful thoughts and actions. Hmm. God doesn't determine them. So they'll say, well, yeah, they can't choose to do anything good, but they can choose between a whole bunch of bad things. Wow. Well, that's still soft libertarian free will. Mm-hmm. Next question. Do Christians possess the ability to resist temptation in thought and action as per 1 Corinthians 10.13. Mm-hmm. That is to say, if a Christian chooses to sin, could they have really taken the way of escape that God says he provides? Mm-hmm. Well, virtually across the board, I've got 
all Calvinists affirming that one. So at least, at the very least, Christians have libertarian free will to sin or not to sin. Mm-hmm. God doesn't force us to do one or the other. But they would just say, well, God gives us a nature to now freely choose to sin or not to sin. Now we have a nature to at least want to try to not sin, but sometimes we'll still freely choose to sin. Either way, now you've got a nature, you've got more options to freely choose from, to sin mm-hmm. or to glorify God. You can do either. Um, next question. Do Christians have the libertarian ability to choose between reading a red Bible or a blue Bible? For example, if John Piper chose to read a red Bible— could he have genuinely chose or chosen otherwise and read the blue Bible? So most Calvinists I talk to will say, yeah, uh, John Piper can, if there's a red Bible and a blue Bible in front of him, he has the free freedom to choose between one of the two, unless God has given him a red Bible loving nature. So he will always <laughs> choose the red Bible. <laughs> I mean, so again, though, then John Piper would not be responsible for that. God gave him that red Bible loving nature. What would John Piper say to that question? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. I've got a couple articles on my website dealing with things that John Piper has written. I love John Piper. And I've said that if it wasn't for John Piper, I might not be married today because after I read his book back when I was still a Calvinist um, about uh, it was called Don't Waste Your Life. And I think one of the chapters was called Risk is Right or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just read that chapter and then I thought, I'm going to take a risk and ask that Tia girl if she'll go on a date with me. <laughs> she was way out of my league, you know, way yeah. out of my league. I thought there's no way she's going to say yes, but hey, I'll take a risk because it's the right thing to do, according to John Piper. And I did it and we, you know, now we're married. Well, thank so you, thank John you. Piper. That's thank right. You, John I, Piper. I, dead. I think John Piper gets a lot of things right. I think he's, I he's love kind of John. A, I love him, too. yeah. It's just he's yeah. wrong on Calvinism. Yeah, but, I agree. Yeah. But I've got two articles on the website, one called The Petals Drop, Piper's Problems, and then another one that just came out uh, just in the last month in a response to an article Piper wrote called Does God Control All Things All the Time? I think that's what it was called. I wrote a response to that called Does God Control All Things? A response to John Piper, something like that. So okay. I, I encourage people to read that. So anyway, then final question. Do Christians, this is question six, do Christians possess the libertarian freedom to deliberate and rationally think things through to reach conclusions like Calvinism is probably true or Molinism is the inference to the best explanation? Do we possess the freedom to examine our beliefs and our thoughts or is something else determining that? I mean, if, if that's the case, then, you know, I, I've got another article where I've written on uh, the title was, I think, therefore I am, not according to determinists. Right. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, I mean, do we possess the ability to evaluate our own thoughts or not? Or does something else other than us determine these things for us? So after I ask those six questions to my Calvinist friends, I say, if you answered yes to one or more of, the, of those questions, then you affirm libertarian free will in some things. And that's just known as soft libertarianism. But soft libertarianism is libertarian free will. Mm-hmm. And if they answered in the affirmative to any of those questions, then I ask two other questions. Was God surprised by any of these free choices? And did God learn anything new based on these free choices? If they answer no to one of those two questions, then 
because God is eternally omniscient, then it follows that God knew that these free choices would be made logically prior to his creative decree. And if that's the case, then God possesses middle knowledge. And this is how God can be completely sovereign over the soft libertarian free choices of humans. God chooses to create a world in which he knows how persons would freely choose. Therefore, God predestines all things without causally determining all things. Let me let me say that last part again. Yeah, because say this that is, again. This is how God predestines all things. You know, there's no supernatural strings attached. We're not glorified marionettes or puppets or robots right. here. This is how it works. God chooses to create a world in which he knows how persons would freely choose. Therefore, God predestines all things without causally determining all things. And this allows for genuine human freedom and responsibility and affirms that God is sovereign mm. and predestines all things and, in fact, elects all things, including everybody that goes to heaven, without causally determining anybody to go to hell. That's their responsibility. Yeah. And that's the bottom line. And all of that is also what allows love to be possible. Amen. Preach it. So, yeah, well, we could get into a sermon now, but right. we've got to wrap it up. But uh, so the website is freethinkingministries.com. Uh, Tim, it has been such a joy to have you on the show to talk about all this stuff. I, I um, you know, I, I, these are the things I think about in the middle of the night. So uh, thanks so much for coming on and maybe we'll have you back for a, like a, uh, ask the apologist quick answer series or something like that. Yeah, I would love to. In fact, um, my passion is apologetics um, and explaining to people why uh, Christianity is true. That's my main passion. Yes. And uh, but I always say, hey, if you're going to be a good apologist, you've got to be a good theologian. Good, you know, yes. you got to understand what you believe, why you believe it, and then know how to share it. And if you understand what you believe, that's good theology. And then why you believe it, that's good apologetics. And when you understand what you should believe and why you should believe it, then evangelism comes really yeah. easy. Comes really easy. Yes. Yeah. That is awesome. That is so true. And I found that to be true in my own life too. So thanks for coming on and we'll talk soon. All right. Talk to you soon. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button. Or you can simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.